0: It's Brian, back with another Burr Months bonus episode for those of us getting an early start on the holiday season. And this time, it is the second-to-last installment of our YA novel from 1918, Campfire Girls in the Allegheny Mountains, or A Christmas Success Against Odds. If you're just dropping in on this series, you need to go all the way back to episode one because we are going through the entire novel from start to finish. And if you have been here from the very beginning, well, thanks for sticking with us. Again, this is the second-to-last installment, and next time we'll wrap this story up, bringing it to its conclusion, and then head into October with something equally festive, although I don't quite know what that is yet. And if you've heard any of the episodes in this series so far, you probably know what I'm about to say next, my two standard announcements. First of all, it is never too early to send a Christmas memory to appear in an episode later on during the Christmas season. This year, more than any other year, with everything going on, I really want to be able to share your Christmas memories. It means a lot to me, and it means a lot to the rest of the Christmas Past family. And it's super simple to do. Just record a voice memo into your phone and send it to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. Just keep it reasonably short, clean, and family-friendly, and be sure to say your name and where you're from. And secondly, I would love to send you a handwritten Christmas card containing an official Christmas past sticker. You know, there is only one way to get a Christmas past sticker, and that is to review the show on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews really do help a lot, more than you might realize. They make the show more visible to people searching for words like Christmas or holidays or Yuletide when they go into that little search box on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else. So, leaving a review is actually kind of like spreading Christmas cheer. It helps more people discover the show. It doesn't cost you a thing, and it takes just about a minute. So, leave that review and then get in touch with me with your Apple username and a good mailing address to send your card and sticker. You can reach out to me at christmaspasspodcast at Mm -hmm. gmail.com. I hope you enjoy this installment of Campfire Girls in the Allegheny Mountains, or A Christmas Success Against Odds. Chapter 15. A Pile of Scrap Lumber Conditions and developments seemed to work favorably for the mysterious trappers of the campfire girls. In the first place, when Mrs. Stanlock returned home and found the house without an occupant, except Kitty Kopke, who was working away quietly in the kitchen, it was difficult for her to suspect anything wrong. Where are the girls, Kitty? she inquired, and the other replied with a suggestion of foreign accent. Oh, they just gone out for a walk. They'd be back soon, I guess. "'I hope they didn't go far,' Mrs. Stanlock said, concernedly. "'They ought to be careful. It'll be getting dark before very long. "'It's cloudy, and it looks like more snow. "'How long have they been gone?' "'About half an hour,' Kitty answered. "'I went out to the store to get something for my toothache, "'and when I came back, they was gone.' This was the first reference that Mrs. Stanlock heard regarding Kitty's toothache, but she accepted the statement for its face value and waited hopefully for an early return from her daughter and her daughter's guests. Half an hour went by and the girls did not appear. Darkness was now visibly gathering. Mrs. Stanlock was becoming uneasy and called up to her husband's office, but Mr. Stanlock had already started for home. By the time he arrived, the good woman was almost prostrated, so rapidly were fear and apprehension taking possession of her. The big coal operator scented danger at once. Immediately after gathering the principal details of the day's occurrences, he got the police station on the wire and communicated to the officer in charge. Drastic measures were resorted to at once. The day shift of uniformed and ununiformed guards of the law was summoned back to duty and a posse of available citizens were sworn in. About seven o'clock, a posse of citizen policemen, led by three or four uniformed members of the regular force, began a canvas of the neighborhood to discover information that might suggest a clue as to the whereabouts of the missing girls. Half an hour later, a woman informed one of the canvassers that she had seen eight or ten girls enter the yard of the old Buckles' house between three and four o'clock, but had not noticed whether they went into the house or not. The man to whom this statement was made blew a whistle as an agreed signal to the other searchers that he had important information, and soon a score of them were running toward him from all directions. A comparison of notes disclosed the fact that another member of the party of canvassers had received a similar statement from another resident in the neighborhood. It was decided, therefore, to delay no further but to proceed at once to the house in question, while one of the men hastened to Mr. Stanlock with news of developments in order that he might be present and direct the next move. The latter was waiting at home, ready to answer a telephone or personal call from any of the central points of investigation. The nervous strain of the apparent certainty by this time that the disappearance of Marion and her guests portended serious developments had compelled Mrs. Stanlock to take to her bed and summon a physician and a nurse. The call from the searchers in the neighborhood took Mr. Stanlock from her bedside and so speedily did he respond to it that he was at the entrance of the Buckholes house almost as soon as the party of citizens and uniformed policemen. "'Don't hesitate, men,' he urged. "'I know the owner of this house very well "'and will take all responsibility for damages on my shoulders. "'If the door won't give, break it down.' "'Maybe there's somebody at home,' Lieutenant Larkin suggested. "'Let's ring the bell first. "'Well, come on,' said Mr. Stanlock. "'We'll soon find out if there's anyone in the house.' He led the way up the weather-beaten but fairly well-preserved steps and pulled the knob of the old-fashioned doorbell. Then they waited expectantly, straining their ears to catch the sound of the approach of someone within. But no such sound reached them. It appearing evident now that the house was temporarily without an inmate, the searchers for the 13 mysteriously vanished girls decided to force their way in. Under ordinary conditions, this act would have been considered burglary, but the present circumstances were so extraordinary that legal consequences had no terrors for any of those present. Accordingly, an examination was made of the first two-story windows, two of which were found unlocked. With the aid of a box discovered under the rear porch, several of the men climbed in one by one and found themselves in a large, unfurnished room, architecturally intended, perhaps, as a dining room. Each of the three uniformed policemen carried an electric flashlight, and with the aid of these, an examination of the house was begun. But not a trace of the missing girls could be found. "'What next?' one of the men asked. "'The basement,' suggested Lieutenant Larkin. Mr. Stanlock opened the door at the head of the stairway and flashed his light down the steps. "'Wait a minute,' he said, barring the entrance. "'Let's examine the ground as we go. "'These steps have dust on them, and there are shoe prints in the dust, "'and yes, sir, as sure as you are alive, they are the prints of women's shoes, "'and there are a lot of them unless I'm mistaken.' "'Be careful now, men. Follow me single file and come down along the left side of the stairway as close to the wall as possible so as not to spoil these footprints in the dust.' "'Look out,' said Mr. Stanlock. "'There may be some desperate characters down there with guns. Better let me go first. I have the most at stake.' "'Not much,' replied the lieutenant. "'We'll never win the European War without charging the trenches. All I ask is that you get the fellow that gets me. So here goes.' Cautiously, he descended the stairs, followed by the five men who had entered the house with him. But their anticipations were groundless. Not a sign of human life did they find in the large, square, deep basement or cellar, more properly. Some of the men looked puzzled. Mr. Stanlock was evidently laboring under increased distress, but Lieutenant Larkin's curiosity seemed to grow. Some queer stories have been told about this place, he said, and I'm wondering if now is not the time to put them to the test. There are pretty wild stories, almost as wild as haunted house yarns, but there may be a thing to them. I've heard something about them myself, said Mr. Stanlock. You refer to the stories about the building of this house over an old mine, I suppose. This cellar was said to have been the mouth of the shaft of the mine enlarged. That's it, their lieutenant replied. Now let's look about and see if there's anything to it. He began to flash his light over the floor, walls, and contents of the cellar. The latter consisted principally of barrels, boxes, and a nondescript pile of scrap lumber. Most of this was heaped against the south wall. Presently, something in the pile of lumber held the attention of the lieutenant, who began to examine it more closely. "'Look here,' he said, addressing Mr. Stanlock. "'Do you see any difference between this pile of lumber and that dry goods box over there?' I was just noticing that there was a heavy covering of dust on the box and little or none on the top pieces of the lumber," the mine owner answered. That's just it, continued Lt. Larkin, and it can mean only one thing, that this pile of lumber has been moved recently. Now the question, in view of the fact that the missing girls were seen entering this place today, and in view of the shoe prints on the cellar stairway, and the fact that they are not in the basement now, is why? The best way to find out is to move it again, suggested Sergeant Higgins. Exactly, agreed his superior officer. Now, Johnson, you go upstairs and inform the other men what we are doing. We don't want them down here, for there's nothing they can do. Moreover, we don't want any more traveling up and down those steps than is absolutely necessary. Be careful, Johnson, on your way up. Excuse me, Lieutenant, interposed Mr. Stanlock in a weak voice that bespoke the distress under which he was laboring. I think I won't remain down here just now. I'll go up and carry that message to the men, if you wish. Let me know as soon as you can what you find. Chapter 16. Helen and the Strike Leader's Wife What had become of Helen Nash? It was a very determined little woman who stole out of the Stanlock residence, with the contents of the last threatening letter fresh in her memory after the return of the members of Flamingo Campfire from their Sunday afternoon drive. She walked briskly four blocks east and boarded a streetcar. A 20-minute ride took her into the heart of the mining tenement district. Reference to an address memorandum on a slip of paper that she carried in her handbag and a question to the conductor determined where she should get off. Heaver Street, the conductor told her, was three blocks east. There was no evidence of a slackening of resolution. She proceeded as directed and was soon searching a long row of cottages built along almost identical lines for number 632. Reaching this number, she ascended a flight of seven or eight steps and gave a quick turn to the old-fashioned 15 or 20-cent trip-action doorbell. A pale-faced, careworn woman of about 30 years, who might have been mistaken for 40, answered the ring. At sight of the caller, she exclaimed in a voice that echoed years of toil and suffering, "'Helen!' "'Nell!' was the greeting returned by the caller. The woman stepped aside, and Helen stepped into a hall whose sole furnishing consisted of a rag rug on the floor and a cheap hall tree and a cracked mirror. Evidently, it was the chief wardrobe of the house, for upon the twenty or more nails driven into the walls, in fairly regular order, were articles of both men's and women's wear, most of them bearing evidence of contact with hard labor. From the hall, Helen was conducted into the front room, the only name it was ever known by, which communicated with the dining room through a cased opening without portieres. These two rooms were about as barely furnished as possible under a minimum of necessary articles and quality. A threadbare ingrain rug covered the floor of the front room. A few rag rugs hid probably some of the worst gaps in the matching of the yellow pine floor of the dining room. As for human life in the house, of pinch and poverty, it was hardly vigorous enough to attract attention ahead of the furnishings. Clinging to the faded skirts of their mothers were three hungry-eyed, anemic children, a girl and two boys. "'How are you, Nell?' inquired Helen, giving the woman a kiss that seemed almost to frighten her. "'It's been two years since I've seen you.' "'I'm not very well, Helen,' the other replied warily. "'I've about given up all hope of ever seeing any better days. "'But what brings you here? I didn't expect to ever see you again.' "'Now, Nell, don't talk that way,' Helen protested. "'You know—or maybe you don't know it—that I would do anything in the world to keep you out of this unhappy condition.' "'but Dave's way of looking at things makes it impossible. "'If you had any vitality, I would urge you to leave him and earn your own living.' "'But I haven't any left, Helen,' said the discouraged woman. "'And I don't believe I'll ever recover any. "'I've rested hope after hope on Dave's assurances of his ability to make a success in life. "'Really, he is a queer genius, and I don't use the word genius entirely with disrespect.' In some ways, he's clever, very clever, but in other ways, he is the most impossible man you ever knew. I believe he is thoroughly honest, but he has no idea of the value of money and what it means to his family. I believe he is by far the strongest leader among the men, but it does neither him nor his family any good. Many a labor leader would make such power and position a source of revenue for himself, but not Dave. Instead, half of his earnings, when he works, are devoted to the labor cause. How does he get such a hold on the miners? Helen inquired. By talk, just talk, and really, I must admit he is one of the cleverest speakers I've ever heard. I've seen an audience of a thousand working men and women stand on their tiptoes and cheer him as if they would burst their lungs." I was proud of him on such occasions, but when we got home to our stale bread and soup, I could not help wondering if it was not all a dream, and I had not just waked up to the reality of things. When will he be home? I wish I could tell you, the woman said helplessly. He may be here in five minutes, or he may not come before twelve or one o'clock tonight. Right here is where the holiday charity work of the Flamingo Campfire begins, she told herself. Then aloud, she added, "'I haven't had much to eat since morning, couldn't eat much this noon in my condition of mind, and I'm hungry. "'What have you in the house for a Sunday evening lunch, Nell?' "'Not much, Helen,' was the reply. "'Only a half a loaf of rye bread and some corn molasses. "'The children used to be very fond of that, but they've had it so often since the strike began that now they're almost sick of it. Is there any store open near here where I can go and buy something?' There's a bakery and a delicatessen over on the street where the car line runs. It's probably open now. Will I find a drugstore over there, too? I wanted to use the telephone. Yes, you'll find a drugstore on that street a block north. I'll go at once and you set the table while I'm gone. We'll have a feast that will delight the hearts and stomachs of these little ones. God bless you, Helen, were the last words that fell on her ears as she went out. "'I must call up Marion and tell her where I am,' she mused as she hastened toward the drugstore. "'I would have told her where I was going before I left, but I was afraid that she wouldn't let me go. Besides, I don't feel like telling her everything yet.' A few minutes later, she was in the drugstore, applying for permission to use the phone. "'The phone is out of order,' the druggist replied. "'Oh,' Helen exclaimed in disappointment. "'Where is there another one in the neighborhood?' There is none within half a mile that I know of except in the saloons, was the reply. I can't go there, the girl said desperately, and I must have a telephone soon. Won't yours be fixed before long? I hope so, said the druggist. I sent in a call for a repairman. Can't you come back in an hour or two? Yes, I think so, Helen said, turning to go. I do hope it is repaired then, because it's very important. Chapter 17 Helen declares herself. Twenty minutes later, Helen returned to her brother's home, her arms loaded with cured meats, bread, a pie, some frosted cupcakes, a glass of jam, and a bottle of stuffed olives. There, she said as she deposited her bounteous burden on the table, I couldn't get any tea or sugar or butter, but even without those, we can have quite a feast in a very short jiffy. "'I have some tea and some light brown sugar, which the children like on their bread for a change, "'after they've got tired of corn syrup,' Mrs. Nash said. "'Good,' exclaimed Helen with genuine enthusiasm. "'That's fine. Butter and white sugar are unnecessary luxuries sometimes. "'Now we'll get busy and soon be feasting like a royal family.' And there was no mistake in her prediction. True, it was an extremely democratic royalty, proletariat to be more exact, but no child prince or princess ever enjoyed the richest viands in a king's dining room more than little Margaret, Ernest, and Joseph Nash enjoyed the feast spread before them by the girl auntie they had not seen for two years. The conversation between Helen and Mrs. Nash interrupted by the former's errand to the delicatessen and drug stores, was taken up again at the table of the royal feast. The way the children laughed and um-ummed over the goodies did Helen's heart good and rendered even cheerful her discussion of a distressing subject. What in the world ever brought you here, Helen, was the question put by Mrs. Nash after full confidence in the sincerity of Helen's mission, whatever it was, had supplied her with the courage to converse with her sister-in-law with perfect frankness. You didn't come to Hollyhill just to visit us, did you? No, I didn't, Helen answered slowly, and that fact need not hurt your feelings any, Nell. You'll understand what I mean when I've finished my story. I'm attending a girl's school in Westmoreland, "'We are all campfire girls, and 13 of us and a guardian came to Holly Hill on a mission in harmony with the campfire teachings—that is, to work among the poor and suffering families of the strikers during the holidays.' "'What?' exclaimed Mrs. Nash. "'Do you mean to tell me that you're one of the girls visiting the home of Mr. Stanlock, the mine owner?' "'Yes, I am,' Helen replied, looking curiously at the startled woman then you mustn't stay here any longer. You must hurry right back. You are in great danger, I tell you. Very great danger. The fact of your being my husband's sister won't do you any good. There are some bad men around here, and they're as smart as they are bad. Sometimes I wonder if they are really minors or if they're not an accomplished bunch of professional crooks. What makes you think that? Helen inquired. Well, for one reason, I've been told it. "'But before anyone uttered such a suspicion in my hearing, I suspected something wrong. "'You see, while Dave seems to be the leader of the strike, "'he is in fact only a puppet in the hands of a band of the worst kind of crooks "'who are using him to keep the miners in line.' "'Who are they?' asked Helen. "'I don't know them all. I know of only half a dozen. "'They have been here at the house a number of times.' The man who seems to dominate them all is a man known as Gunpowder Jerry, a powerful, cunning, sly-eyed fellow of about 45 years old. He is the business agent of the union and runs everything, although few persons know it. In some mysterious way, he has got a very strong hold on Dave and can make him do anything he wants him to. Why do you think I am in danger here was Helen's next question because I've heard some talk here about what would happen if you girls attempted to carry out your plans. They had a spy, a chauffeur in Mr. Stanlock's home, and he found out all about it. Jerry used this to work up bad blood among the strikers, using Dave as his tool, as usual. The threat reached my ears that if you girls came down here in Mining Town, you'd never get out alive. They think it's just a move to put something over. Did you know that Dave came to Westmoreland a few weeks ago and called at the institution to see me? Helen asked. No, did he? What for? I thought he didn't have any use for you. Excuse me for putting it that way, but that is the way he talks. I suppose so. That's because we objected so much to his way of doing. But I found out on that occasion that there really was a tender place in his heart for us. He wanted me to do something to call off our vacation plans, as he was afraid something would happen. Then why didn't you? Because I didn't take him seriously. But when on the day before we started for Hollyhill, I happened into the post office at Westmoreland and caught him in the act of mailing a letter to Marion Stanlock, I became somewhat alarmed. I forced the truth from him after the letter was mailed. He said he was sending her a threatening letter in the hope that it would break up our plans. I asked him why he came to Westmoreland to mail it. He replied that he was afraid that it would be traced to him if he mailed it in Hollyhill. Then he urged me, almost commanded me, to prevent our plans from being carried out. He declared that every one of us would probably be killed if we came. I promised to do my best. I watched Marion, hoping to see her read the threatening letter. I saw it after it was laid on her desk in her room. I saw her glance at it and put it into her handbag before she went to bed. The next morning, I waked her early and laid the handbag right before her eyes, hoping that she would take the letter out and read it. I did not dare do anything more, but resolved to watch the events closely. Marion read the letter on the train. It was signed with a skull and crossbones. We decided to give up our original plans, but came on to Hollyhill. What did you hope to accomplish by coming to see Dave, Mrs. Nash inquired. I'm going to put the matter right square up to him and demand that he lay bare the whole plot that he has been hinting at. If he doesn't, I'm going to tell him that I am going to lay the whole matter before the police. You'll probably have to do it. I don't believe he'll ever betray the men who control his gifts and his weaknesses as they would handle a child. He really is a child in some respects, isn't he? Absolutely. In fact, I believe he is half sane and half insane, and he is just smooth enough to conceal his insanity from the miners. Have you any objection, Nell, to my going after him good and strong? Helen asked. Not in the least. I wish you would, only I'm afraid the results won't be of much advantage to any of us, and I wish you wouldn't stay here, for I'm afraid you have to start back alone after dark. I'll make him take me back, Helen said resolutely, and I want to assure you in one respect if you're afraid of consequences to yourself and the children. Oh, don't let that bother you, Mrs. Nash interrupted. You couldn't make conditions much worse than they are now, and you may accidentally make them better. But I have something to say that you ought to know, Helen continued. When father died, it was generally supposed that he left nothing for his family. For years he drew a good salary as a mining superintendent. Well, he didn't leave much, except about $5,000 insurance, but Mother had been saving for years, secretly, not even letting him know how much she had. He supposed we were living up his salary of $10,000 a year as we went along, for it wasn't in him to save a cent. Mother took a good deal of delight in her secret. For a while, she had done her best to induce him to save something, and then, realizing that her plea was futile, she got busy herself in a systematic manner, and in the course of seven or eight years, she had laid aside something like $25,000. But shortly before father's death, something happened that caused her to guard her secret up to the present time. A large amount of money was stolen from the company that employed father, and mother realized at once that if it were discovered that she had so much money, suspicion might be directed toward him. In fact, she took me into her confidence only about a year ago. Now, mother has often said that she would like to do something for you and the children, but Dave's peculiarities always stood in the way. I just wanted to tell you that mother is able and willing to help you and will not let you or her grandchildren suffer as a result of what I may be forced to do. The conversation went along in this manner for more than an hour. Neither of the sisters-in-law realized how rapidly the time was flying until dusk fell so heavily that it became necessary to light the gas in order to see each other's faces. My, what time is it? Helen questioned, looking at her watch. "'Why, it's nearly seven o'clock, and I haven't telephoned to Marion yet. "'They'll have the whole police force out looking for me "'if I don't get her on the wire pretty soon. "'I'll run over and see if that phone is repaired yet. "'If it isn't, I'll have to take a car and ride on to the next drugstore, "'but I'll be back before very long.' "'I wish you wouldn't come back tonight, Helen,' Mrs. Nash pleaded. "'I'm so afraid of these men. "'Why not go straight to the Stanlocks and send word to Dave "'that you wish to meet him somewhere tomorrow?' I'd rather handle it this way, the girl answered a little stubbornly. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll have them send the chauffeur with the automobile over here after me. That'll be the best way. With this reassuring announcement, Helen put on her coat and hat and went out but she would not have proceeded so confidently if she had caught a glimpse of the figure of a man dashing far up the alley in the rear, and have realized that this man was crouched in an eavesdropping attitude for an hour or more at the kitchen door, and overheard most of the conversation between her and her sister-in-law. One, two blocks he ran, then through a gateway and into a house similar to nearly every other house in the street. Two men, a woman, and a child ten years old looked expectantly toward him as he entered. All ready, cried the latter, she's coming down the street on this side. Hurry up, Lizzie, get your coat and hood on. Remember what you are to say, father gone, mother sick. If she won't come in with a little begging, make a big fuss. Cry and plead for all you're worth. There you are, all ready. Remember, you get a new coat if you bring her in here the speaker opened the door and almost shoved the pale-faced, trembling child out upon her strange mission. Well, it seems like things are coming to a head, and we're going to find out what happens and how everything wraps up in the next installment, which will be our final installment for this series. I hope you've been enjoying it so far, and I hope you'll come back again next time, which will be in just a couple of days. So until then, let me remind you as always that Christmas Past is produced in wonderful Willow Glen, California, by yours truly, Brian Earle. You can drop me a line anytime, and I wish you would. I love hearing from you. You can tell me how you're doing or share a Christmas memory. You can reach me always at christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com or reach out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you haven't yet joined the private Christmas Past Facebook group, maybe today's the day you will, because we're celebrating all throughout the Burr months and, of course, the Christmas season. And hey, let me just remind you that if you leave a review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts, I'll send you a handwritten Christmas card and an official Christmas Past sticker to say thanks. I actually sent out a couple just this week and it always puts me in the Christmas spirit. Those reviews help me a lot, so I really do appreciate it. You can reach out at christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com for more details about that. Now, until we meet again, make the most of those Burr months, stay safe and healthy, look out for one another, and may your days be merry and bright.